Welcome to Heroes of Brand Protection Podcast, Episode 6. Today, we are thrilled to be speaking with Carrie Hediati, Intellectual Property Counsel at 100%. She will share with us her personal story and how she became an IP lawyer. Her original career path of wanting to be a paleontologist before switching to fashion merchandising with a minor in textiles for an undergraduate's degree, though there was always something in her mind bringing her back to IP issues, and that's when she realized she really wanted to focus on anti-counterfeiting solutions. Hi, Carrie. Thanks uh, for being with us today. We're super excited to have you with us and to learn a little bit more about you and your story. So thank you very much. Well, thank you so much for having me this morning. So, Carrie, as the um, Intellectual Property Council for 100%, does it take you a number of coffees to start your day or do you just like go at it without any coffee? Yes, I have to mainline coffee. Um, but no, I had two cups of coffee today, uh, which is pretty normal. But that's how you get started, huh? Very yeah. good. Yeah. And is there a, is there a story... Um, that you think about as a funny experience story you've had throughout your career, one that sort of stands out that you tend to share with people or unique anyway, it doesn't have to be funny, but it could be unique. Yeah. So one thing that happened, it was at my first job in high school, actually. Um, I had a job at Dairy Queen and the first thing I had to do on my first day was make tray after tray after tray of the dilly bars, which are uh, a soft serve and you put it on a, a tray and you have to make, this special end when you get the end of the soft serve. And I just thought, oh, this is the most annoying thing to do tray after tray after tray. Well, now in hindsight, after being years in the career that I am, I understand that the reason that I had to perfect the way that you do that is because the shape is a, a protected trade dress of Dairy Queen. So the way that the ice cream ends and the little cone curl is actually trade dress. And so on my first day, that was what you know I had to be drilled on. Um, and now I understand the importance of learning um, how to perfect the trade dress so that it was presented to consumers in a consistent way to represent the brand. Well, that's a great blast from the past. I mean, if they had explained to you as a high school student, it was a, you know, a trade dress, it wouldn't have made any sense. But as you have progressed in your career and you saw the attention to detail, that's how important it was at the time. Yeah. Do you do that? So you don't copy that at home when you're making like dessert for the family? You No, I know I do not. Okay, good. So what did you want to be when you grew up? When I was little, I wanted to be a paleontologist. My grandfather had retired from 3M and had started volunteering at the Science Museum of Minnesota. And we got to go on a dig that he was volunteering on in Wyoming. And it was just like the coolest thing to me. So that's what I wanted to be when I was little. But somehow you somehow you made the pivot. How did you how did you decide from from digging up bones to uh, being a lawyer? How did you get there? That's a good job. Yeah, it's um, I got interested in fashion um, in high school, and I just really delved into that world. Wanted to be a buyer um, and pursued that. My undergrad degree is in fashion merchandising with a minor in textiles, and. Through that, the interesting issues that always came up were the intellectual property issues. And so I went to law school to pursue that. 
and went into law school just wanting to work on anti-counterfeiting and brand protection issues. And so, and was very lucky to be able to do that coming out of law school. Great. Where, where did you go to law school? California Western here in San Diego. The, from the cold of Minnesota to the warmth of Southern California, like so many. Right? Yeah. <laughs> yes. And how did, where did you, once, you know, sort of post law school, how did you get going? Yeah. So I was very lucky. We had, um, a family friend of my husband's who had worked at Ocean Pacific um, as in-house counsel in the 80s and 90s, doing a lot of brand protection for them. And at some point, my husband remembered that um, after I started law school and said, you should really talk to Craig about this, because I think he did exactly what you want to do. So he was generous enough to give time. And we had coffee a couple of times during law school and just talked about brand protection in this super nerdy way because it was, you know, like somebody who'd done it for years and loved it. And then somebody who wanted to aspire to doing that and just, he was generous enough with his time to let me pick his brain. Um, And then when I left, when I graduated law school and passed the bar, he said, you know, I want to work less and you want to work. So we should figure something out here Um, and ended up working with him and learning from him all the, the brand protection aspects and trademark and all of that kind of thing um, to be able to come up into this practice area. That's awesome. So I guess I'm a fellow brand protection nerdy person like you and that, you know, we're, we're here talking about brand protection as a couple of brand protection nerds. So, <laughs> yeah. So um, for maybe for those who may not know, I, I know you, um, you're the outside counsel for 100% or inside counsel? No. So I worked as outside trademark counsel for together with Craig at first and then after Craig retired by myself and with other partners around the globe for the past five years. And the past year, I've been in-house intellectual property counsel with them. Oh, great. Uh, for those who may not know uh, business 100%, Maybe share with us how how 100% got its start and what it does in the industry it's in, because it's really a fascinating company. Sure. So 100% has its roots and its origins in the moto industry. Um, it was started in the early 80s and then kind of proceeded along. And the current owners relaunched and expanded um, almost 10 years ago now. and entered in some new spaces with goggles being very predominant, um, our first major new product, and then launching into eyewear a few years later, sports performance eyewear. Um, If you open any motorsports magazine, you're going to find them all over the magazine. They are worn by a lot of top riders in both motocross and endurance events, as well as many, of course, recreational riders. Uh, Our eyewear has been very prominent in cycling and in other endurance events, endurance running, and then recently entered the baseball space. So one of the up-and-coming young Major League Baseball players here who happens to be in San Diego, Fernando Tatis Jr., wears our sunglasses um, regularly, as do a lot of other Major League players. 
I didn't know that about the major league uh, players. My son was a uh, a little league or high school and college baseball player, and we were very influenced by, you know, bats, gloves, sunglasses by uh, uh, major league baseball players. So that's super cool. You've entered that uh, space. I, that I didn't know. That's fascinating. Yes, and we've also recently started making extra small models for the little leaguers. <laughs> very good. So um, maybe share with us you know, in your role or in your current role or in your previous roles as you've been marching down your career, you know, what are some of the hardest things you've had to do? I think prioritizing continues to be a hard thing to do um, because you have, we, we do business in about 80 different countries. And so it's a lot of trying to figure out which markets we need to focus our energies on and as well as you're always balancing what's visible. So what's on people's radar outside of the legal team versus what is actually doing harm. So always prioritizing those. And it's always changing because, you know, there are different issues that come up. Different countries are hotspots at different times. New products come out. A new athlete is wearing our product or features our product. And so it's that's the challenge of always reassessing and reprioritizing. Yeah, I think uh, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, clearly in that line of work, there are more things you can do in a day, uh, maybe do in a month and figuring out what to do first and which which spot is really going to give you the biggest impact for your efforts is certainly one of those challenges. That makes a lot of sense. Thank you so much. Um, when you think about the, sort of the future of commerce, you know, both brick and mortar commerce, online commerce, how does 100% sort of think about their strategy for online and offline? Like what's, where, where are they going to be? Uh, we have traditionally been very active in both markets because the industries that we're in, moto and bike, especially bike, is a small brick and mortar industry. You know, we depend on our independent bike shops. Um, and that's vital and that may change over time, but it's, I, there's always going to be that component. Um, it's a very local industry in terms of bike. Of course, we have other industries that we're in as we emerge into more mainstream sports like baseball, that's, you know, an online business, but we are just navigating both spaces and pivoting with the changes that we see in those spaces to grow and reach consumers in remaining authentic to our brand image and the support system and our, our networks of distribution that we've always had um, while modernizing with those, those industries. Yeah, makes sense. And, and when you think about like your work in the anti-counterfeit space, do you see sort of the lines blurring in terms of offline and online in terms of solving for counterfeits or you see them as separate challenges? It, it is separate in a way because when you're doing online, a lot of it is scraping the surface. A lot of it is just getting rid of kind of the bottom players in the chain of distribution of counterfeits, right? It's just getting rid of what's at the surface without attacking the root. So you have to do that offline work as well um, to get rid of the root of the problems. We have one funny issue, you know, where it brings both together is 
maybe there's a Facebook page, but there's also in one instance that we came across people selling out of a truck. And so you have to do, you know, both the online aspect of getting rid of that Facebook page, but also the offline aspect of tracking that guy down in his truck and and handing the demand letter or sending the demand letter in some way and making sure that, you know, you follow through with the offline aspect as well. That's great. That's great. Let me ask you this. What about when you think about people in your industry from a, you know, council of, you know, focused on counterfeits, is there like a, a myth we need to debunk about people who do what you do? I suppose you worked it up by calling us, uh, uh, you know, brand protection nerds. So that's sort of a beloved term, but. Yeah. Sorry if I am propagating that myth that we're all nerdy, but um, I, I think one, and I don't think it's particular. I mean, I think it's a little bit broader for me as an attorney is that you have to come at a problem with a super aggressive, no holds barred approach to be able to solve the problem. Um, and I think that's, you know, a myth because that's not going to work in all situations. First of all, if you you get faster and better cooperation sometimes through a a more reasoned and I'm not going to say friendly per se in brand protection, but a non-aggressive approach um, can sometimes serve you much better and get a much better result than just coming in with all guns blazing. Great. Thank you so much. That's that's helpful to us. We were uh, speaking in a previous podcast to uh, Evan, Evan Feldstein, who is the vice general manager and general counsel at Ferreo, which is a big cosmetic application product for both men and women in the market. He had a question for you. And if it's okay with you, I'd like to, Carrie, get your thoughts on this question. Yeah. He said, if you could have dinner with any three uh, living people, who would you choose and why would you choose those three? First of all, I would like to say this question is not fair during COVID when we're all at home with restrictions. And basically, I like to have dinner with anyone outside of my immediate family. Um, But to participate and answer the question, I think one person I would really like to have dinner with is Judy McCool, who is... um, formerly VP of Legal Affairs at HBO. I think she's probably got some very good stories about brand protection. Um, another, I'm going to I'm gonna cheat a little bit because I think the question is so unfair during this time period. <laughs> so my number two would be Vice President Harris and the second gentleman. Vice President Harris has been a leader in the California legal industry for a while in legal field. Um, and her husband is an intellectual property attorney. So I think they would be have some interesting insights in their paths and and that kind of thing. And then finally, I, I'm going to cheat again and just say our team at 100% because they all bring so much passion and dedication to the work. And we really grow from, you know, being together and feeding off of each expertise that's brought by each kind of business group and business team. Um, and having to work from home from the past year, a lot of, we've missed out on a lot of that, um, as most companies have. And so I think getting together and all sitting down for a, a team dinner would be great. Those are great answers. Thank you for sharing. I think you all three great picks. Um, 
what advice would you give a young person, you know, pursuing a career similar to yours? What would you tell them is, would be critical to do? Yeah, I think seeking out mentors is absolutely critical. It's been a huge benefit to me. And I've had the opportunity also to reach back and provide some um, mentorship to younger people. And I just think, you know, somebody has done what you want to do before. And if they haven't done exactly what you want to do, they can provide some advice on how to get to a starting point for you to launch into what you want to do. And I think it's beneficial. Both sides of a mentorship relationship are beneficial. I think mentors learn from their mentees as well. Um, and I've, as I said, I've had, I've been very fortunate um, in my undergrad having professors in law school, having professor, um, and then with Craig Carell as I grow in my early days of my profession. Um, so I just, I think that's so important, those type of relationships. Yeah, totally. I think you're hundred percent right. I think that's great advice and it's great advice for people who are seeking your career path or seeking even other career paths, finding someone to, as you said, someone's done what you're about to want to do. You might as well find them and speak to them, right? Yeah. Is there someone you have mentioned a couple people uh, so far with the dinner and Craig, the other person is, but is there someone you think about when you think of who inspired you in your career? Yeah. Um, There's, I've mentioned some of them already, but my aunt Gail really had a big impact on me. She wasn't an attorney herself, but she had her own business. Um, And she really taught me the difference between being stubborn and being determined. So I think that, you know, when you're stubborn, that doesn't get you anywhere. You just dig in your heels and hold your position. But when you're determined, you use kind of that same skill set to help move forward, to help overcome obstacles and to get your point across or advocate for your position. So that was really a helpful lesson to learn. And in college, when I was doing my undergrad degree in fashion merchandising, one of my professors, Tani Shirell, taught the costume history, and she always brought up the um, issue of close copies. And that was, again, like perked my interest in this area about, well, what, what is, you know, like what is the legal or moral issue there between making a close copy in the fashion industry versus like actually infringing? Um, and so that was a, a big influence on me as well. Wonderful. I, I like your Aunt Gail's concept uh, of the difference between uh, being uh, determined and being stubborn. Yeah. It's <laughs> <laughs> awesome. So um, following, your, uh, following this podcast, the next one we'll be doing is with Dennis Wilkie, who's the legal brand protection person at uh, Klaus, which is a watch company. Yes. What kind of thing do we want to learn from uh, Dennis? What would you want to know from Dennis? Well, I would like to know what his favorite brand enforcement resources are and why. So if it's a conference, a blog, or some type of publication, and why that is particularly interesting or informative to him. We will ask him. Well, Carrie, thank you so much for your time. We appreciate the opportunity to have spoken to you. Your story is great. And uh, thank you for uh, sharing that with us and our listeners. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very happy to be here. I think three things really resonated from today's conversation. 
Seeking out mentors is critical. The importance of giving back, meaning mentoring young people is not only a beneficial to the young people who are thinking about their careers, but also it's the learning you get from mentoring. And lastly, don't forget that someone has done what you want to do. Just ask. They still can provide great advice on how you want to get to where you want to go. That's it for us today. If you liked what you heard, check out our next inspiring personal story and another episode of Heroes of Brand Protection. You can follow us on all of our platforms, Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, as well as Twitter and LinkedIn. Make it a good day.